Win stacks of cash by entering the 150K Crack the Code giveaway. Brought to you by your local paper, now through July 14th. Look for the code on page A2. Then visit 150kgiveaway.com and submit your entry. You could win the grand prize of $100,000. Grab the paper every day. Get the code on page 2A and improve your chances to win tons of weekly cash prizes. Visit 150kgiveaway.com for details. The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome back to another episode of The Other Side podcast. I'm your host, Scott Kirk, along with my co-host, Lucas Sullivan. And today we're going to be talking about affordable housing in the city. And we have a special guest in the studio, Amy Claben. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Amy is the uh, project facilitator for Move to Prosper. She's also former president and CEO of Homeport, and she helped establish the Affordable Housing Alliance of Central Ohio. And Amy, I've been wanting to talk about this a long time. I'm sure as most of our listeners may know, there's a, a building boom going on, not only across the country, but especially here in Columbus. And a lot of that construction is housing. And so the question is, the housing that's being built, is it affordable for low income and uh, moderate income families? And so um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. The housing that's being built is not affordable for families and for people who um, are working at just regular jobs, people that serve us every day that we couldn't live without. We do have a building boom. It's great to be in Columbus, Ohio, and actually in our region. It's not just in the city. It's throughout the region. We have a lot of people moving into the community who need more housing, and so rents are being pushed up. What would you say, in terms of the families that you work with and represent, what would be a affordable rent amount? Well, there are 54,000 households right now in our community that pay more than half of their income for rent. That means that they are severely housing burdened. They don't have enough money to pay for all of their other costs. Mm-hmm. So rents for a family that are between six and $800, you know, that's what's needed. For some, that's still too much. So we not only need to create more affordable housing, but we need rental support for people who are working who need assistance. In our community, only 25% of people who need rental support get it, Mm -hmm. yet anybody buying a home does have that benefit of tax deduction Mm -hmm. for the interest and other types of governmental benefits. So we have a lot of people who do need support so that they can live in a safe, decent, affordable home in a safe neighborhood. So the extreme view on this issue, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, is, you know, this is the price to pay for a growing city. I hear that, especially when I was covering City Hall, that if Columbus is going to grow and become, you know, what it wants to be, or at least what the leaders want it to be, which is a major metropolitan city, a player on the national landscape for jobs and tech, that this is the price of doing business in terms of the city's going to get bigger, things are going to get more expensive, transportation is going to become a little more difficult. It's just kind of the factored in. And I wanted to get your response to that type of thinking that we need more skyscrapers, we need more high-rise living units. I just want to get your thoughts on that. I think the question we have to ask is, what kind of city do we want to live in in 20 years from now? And then how do we plan for that? 
So communities that have grown a lot, and I think Austin's a good example where, and there's many other cities to use as examples, they grew so fast, rents went up so much, housing became unaffordable, and now they're trying to figure out what to do. So for us, we're at the beginning of this growth And we should be thinking about a whole toolbox so that people who are living currently in neighborhoods that we hope one day become revitalized, but the people who are there need to be able to stay. And they should not be getting priced out because what we're just doing is moving poverty. Employers are having a very difficult time getting employees because where the lower wage jobs are located, there's no housing there. And transportation is not the only solution. And in fact, for many, it's not a solution when you have to travel for three hours a day to get to your job. People opt out of doing that because they can't take care of their family. So how do we want to think about our region? Do we want one where we have the creativity of diversity? And if you think about big cities that people want to go to, there's a lot of diversity there of different kinds of people from, you know, um, class, race, ethnic backgrounds. And we have to plan for that and have housing that meets everybody's needs. And the region, so it's a regional issue, we need to think about what kind of housing we want and then have zoning and building codes to accommodate everybody in the region. How do you make the argument to a developer who is, let's be honest, they're out to make a profit, right? As, as much as to maximize their profit as much as possible. How do you make the argument to them that they should allocate a portion perhaps of their development or through some other means for low income residents from a business perspective? What incentive would they have to do that? Our region's growing, so where is everybody going to live? If all of the developers are required to have inclusion, to have a certain number of their housing units available for people at different incomes, then they'll all accommodate. We hear that from developers who develop here in Columbus, where in our region it's not required, but they go to other cities and it is, and the economics are different, and they factor it in. Mm-hmm. And they have rents that are at different levels for different people. Now, in our community, it was nice to see that the mayor's incentive policy is to foster mixed income neighborhoods. I mean, that's what it says on the Department of Development's website. To do that, it should be all housing that's created, not just in particular neighborhoods, but let's create the access to opportunity for everybody throughout the region, and then developers will find their way to have the economics work out so that they can create mixed-income communities and inclusion. Tell us a little more about your organization. I know that you're pretty excited about it, and I know you guys have some um, some events and some things coming up. But just tell us a little more about how it came about, how you became a part of it. And I'm also curious to know how you're funded. So what you're referencing is a, a pilot that is being launched this week called Move to Prosper. It's an initiative of The Ohio State University. People came together a couple of years ago talking about how do we give children the ability to succeed and prosper in our community? And how do we give families the ability to have a choice to live throughout the region? Many communities throughout the country have programs to enable families to have that kind of choice. So we began working with private landlords who said, yes, makes sense to have access to our apartment communities in high opportunity communities that those are areas with access to jobs, with career potential, high performing schools, 
grocery stores. You know, we know that many of our neighborhoods are food deserts. Food deserts, yes. Um, so it connects all the issues. So we came together and built a pilot program that includes rental support for three years. So it's short term. Mm-hmm. It's for women who are single, have children under 13, one in school, at least one in school, and um, not receiving any kind of government benefits right now for their rental support. So we know that they are severely cost burdened. But what's important about this is it's not just rental support. It comes with coaching. What we know is that as you're moving into a new neighborhood, people need assistance in the move and accessing the opportunities in a new neighborhood and learning to navigate the systems. So in doing focus groups with women from many different organizations, we heard a theme. And the theme was that they wanted not just a class, but coaching support, which people who are middle and upper income get all the time for financial financial capabilities, for career growth, for handling issues with navigating your school. There's lots of ways that people of means get help and get support that when you're lower income, you don't necessarily have a coach helping you figure these things out. Well, I just had this question. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Let's say that, you know, I'm financially well off. I can afford those $1,300 a month rents. And from my perspective, I say people should just pull up their bootstraps. Why can't these people, you know, pay rent like everyone else? Why do they need assistance? Why should I be forced to subsidize their rent in in any kind of way? What would you say to someone who maybe sees things from, from that view? I would say that nobody pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps, Mm -hmm. that we've all had help. And if you've gone to a high-performing school and your parents had a good job, somebody helped them get there. And we need to provide access to opportunity to everybody. So we start with a level playing field for the kids. Because if you're a child and you don't have access to those opportunities, you're living in neighborhoods where you're subjected to toxic stress every day. And it's not your choice. That's where you live. And we know it's a result of living in an area where you can't go out and play. You're worried about the increasing homicide rate in our community. We have to tackle those issues. And I'm glad to see that we are revitalizing our neighborhoods. But at the same time, there are people who want to have a choice to move somewhere else. And so to the people who say, well, I don't want to live near people who are in need of pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, I would say that when you are living in a community that has diversity, it benefits all of us. It'll benefit you. That having families near you who are different and kids all going to school together, the kids grow from that. And that's good for enabling everybody to become part of the fabric of our community and one day work in jobs where there are people that are different. And it starts when your kids being able to grow with people who are not just like you. So there are some things, some facts we can talk about related to this and and in covering this issue. I'm always struck by the fact that in Columbus, it's regarded as a city on the rise and it's no longer a city that needs to be discovered because of its population boom and its growth boom. But during that time, the types of jobs that have been added to the city have been largely lower paying jobs. They've been a lot of service jobs. They've been a lot of warehouse jobs, jobs that aren't attractive to anyone. 
And during this time, this boom from the city, the poverty rate has grown and the severity of the poverty that people are living in has grown. They've gotten worse off than they were. And I remember the the state of poverty study that was released, uh, I think a year and a half ago now, but it looked over a 12 to 13 year period in Ohio. And the, you know, the demographics of those living in poverty, almost half were single moms. I think about a third of them, and you can check me on these, Amy, if, but I think a, a third of them were black, a quarter of them, maybe a little more than that, were Latino. And so it seems to me that this is kind of where we start is if it's jobs or if it's transportation or if it's getting childcare for those single moms. I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, we could dive into any of those pools I just mentioned, but where do you start, I guess? If I'm a single mom right now living in poverty, listen to this, where do I start? So I believe that where you start is when you're dealing with living in concentrated poverty, and so it's about housing, mm-hmm. that it's hard to get out. You look at the statistics, the amount of mobility out of poverty is very difficult when you're living in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. It breeds all of these other issues. And why do we have this? It's because of zoning codes. It's mm-hmm. because of how we as a community, um, and this is true across the country, have allowed the use of zoning laws, government action, and that's us, to create neighborhoods where people don't have access to opportunity and you lose hope. And so you're right to talk about all of these individual issues because we can't solve just one. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to say, well, let's like grow the food bank and everybody have food because that's a symptom of the underlying problems. And all of these other issues are symptoms of living in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. So what do we want our community to look like in the future? Are we going to have a comprehensive plan to enable people to have live in good neighborhoods? and access the growth and opportunity we have? Or are we going to grow our neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, which we're doing now in some ways exactly where they are and others we're just moving the poverty to other neighborhoods and not you know, looking at the underlying issues. So I think that we need to look at how we are creating our community, which is about where we're building and the incentives that the government provides that creates these issues. And I recognize not everybody's going to be happy living near people who aren't like them, but we have a very diverse community. Hmm. And if you look at a lot of the other discussion out in the community in the world, the more we segregate ourselves and only live near people who are just like us, we don't create the kind of workplaces that benefit our economy, that don't benefit the growth of individuals so that they can become part of the economic fabric of our community. So do you think that what's happening in Franklinton in the city and what's happening in Old Town East and on Near East Side, the fear is there and and you see it happening that there's gentrification going on and, and you're just pushing the poor out to somewhere else. So I'm wondering, do you feel that the leaders in this community largely give poverty kind of some lip service? Or do you think that when these revitalizations occur, that there actually are some things that are done to preserve what you're talking about? I think our community leaders have good hearts 
And I think they are struggling to figure out what good housing policy should look like. I think they're also straddling the line between being politicians or government leaders. Because if you're part of the city council or the mayor, part of your job is economic development. And so I think they're trying to walk a fine line. They, On one hand, like you said, Amy, they care about people and they want affordable housing. But at the same time, they want to get rid of vacant properties and they want to see some of these vacant and derelict properties redeveloped. So I think they get caught in sort of a catch-22. And I agree with that. And, you know, everybody responds to who's loudest and the economic issues. You know, as you mentioned, there are tools that the city can look at. So as they're revitalizing, they can require that a certain percentage of the units be affordable and not just to people at 100% of area median income or 80%, but lower to create the vibrancy and the creative community that many people would like to see. They could have a land trust so that the housing that's currently affordable can remain affordable. They could use other tools so that people are not forced out of an area as rents go up. So I'd like to see the community look at the broader tools and have a whole toolkit because we do know that rents are going up and people are moving out and people aren't happy about that. And revitalization is fine. It's just you look at it comprehensively and ensure that people who are currently in the community can stay. And also, too, the city, there's been a lot of discussion the last couple of years about the tax abatements that the city offers to residential commercial development. And I'm wondering if you have thought or if you have discussed at all, even among your staff or at home with anybody about instead of offering these tax abatements, you know, 7,500% for 10 to 15 years, you know, they cut that down by a third or have a developer, if they offer that tax break, set aside some money that then they can turn around and use for the things that you're talking about. If you do that, again, it all comes back to what kind of community do you want to create? Do we want neighborhoods, I think the short north is a good example, where there is a lot of development. Because of all of the development, it's no longer a area that's accessible to many Most people. people yeah. And in fact, does not require any tax abatements. You don't have to incentivize any developer to build in the short north. They're going to do that anyway. So I'm not really sure why the city it still feels like they need to sort of give them these tax abatements to develop these luxury properties. The short north is white hot right now. So if I'm pretty sure if the city said, we're not going to give you any tax abatement, but you can still go ahead and read They would still do it. So, And that's right. And there's other areas of our wider community that developers are going to go to because we have such a need for more housing that if they were required and everybody equally to include, it's called inclusionary zoning, include housing for people of different incomes, they would do that. There's such a need and demand for housing that I think when they're all treated the same way, they would respond that way. So the policy being discussed right now should not just be for particular areas that are growing. They're called market ready. We need to look at the whole community and have policies for the whole community that encourage housing for people who are lower in moderate income. You know, what's interesting, what we haven't talked about is the benefits cliff. So the benefits cliff is when you get public assistance for food stamps, SNAP, rental support, Medicaid, anything else, child care. As your income goes up, you lose benefits. That makes sense, but it's not lined up. 
So, you know, we hear stories all the time. You can talk to people in any social service organization in the government. They understand that because this is not aligned right, people's you know, don't want to t- take a, a salary increase. They get trapped. Be- yeah. They get or, trapped. Or if they're on assistance and they get a job, but the job doesn't pay enough to take care of the child care. So even though they're they're being more self-sufficient, now they're in a situation where they're making money, but it's still not enough to actually provide for their needs. And so right. they either have to make a decision of whether to, to stay on public assistance, which will cover their child care and their housing, or try to get off and really struggle on their own. Right, because they lose more in benefits than they gain from the job. So we hear this from employers as well. Like, well, why won't people take my, you know, 50 cent raise? Well, because they're going to lose more in benefits than they're gaining from your job, your salary increase. The government needs to better align all of the benefits so that it really provides an incentive to help people on the path up and out of poverty. We hear from people they want to. It's not a question of want. It's the bootstraps. But you become trapped. And it's an important part of this equation that, as we've set up Move to Prosper, it doesn't have that trap. I would like to um, just add one more thing to kind of tie everything that we've been talking about together, because I I think a lot of times, just in general, I think people should just be more empathetic to other people's situations. But you know how it is. Human nature, people don't really feel something until they think it may affect them. And so when it comes to affordable housing, for those people who may be listening to this and they're thinking, I'm fine, I'm, I'm comfortable, I can pay my rent, I can pay my mortgage, affordable housing affects all of us. Because if we we don't get this under control now. Look at cities like San Francisco or New York, where I think in San Francisco, even if you have an income of a million dollars, it's still hard to find housing because just the cost of living and housing in the city has become unaffordable for most people. And so, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people that when that first started thought, well, that's not me. That's the poor people's problem. And, you know, as housing prices and property values and continue to rise, it's going to start affecting more and more people. I mean, right now, it may just mostly affect low-income people, but if rents continue to rise, if home prices continue to rise, it's going to start affecting middle-class people and even upper-middle-class people. So I think we should all be concerned about this, even if it isn't affecting us directly or immediately, because we're on a trend where it's just going to continue to get worse and worse for all of us. Well, I don't want to get in an argument with you. There there are some parts about that that you're right on, but there also is you know, a rising tide raises all ships. And so at some level, having higher rents, having more development is a good thing. But it can't outpace, it can't that, outpace wages, that's which where is the, basically That's where the Amy's problem is. Point. If your growth isn't meeting the job requirements of your residents, if it's not meeting the transportation requirements of your residents, what you're starting to see in this city, because the poverty rates are growing and the poverty gap is getting wider in terms of people who are living just really awful poverty, that's where the development starts to negatively impact portions of the community. But it's not a bad thing to want to raise the bar. 
I think. But no. when you're leaving more people behind and you're leaving them more way behind, then you have to pause sometimes. I agree with both of you. We do have to raise the bar, and that's good. But let's have policies in place so we don't keep leaving people behind. And who we're leaving behind is not just people in poverty. If you talk to people who are middle and higher income, ask them, where are your children going to be able to live? Can your children live in the community where you are? Probably not. Yeah. The rents are too high. The housing costs are too high. So it's not just about Those others. people over there, the <laughs> others. Um, it's about your children. Where are your parents going to live? When they age, are they going to be able to stay in the community or not? Are we creating housing that's accessible to people as they age? And we have an aging population, a lot more seniors, who are not going to be able to afford a decent place to live in our community. Is that what we want? And do we want them to only live in other parts of the community where there's low-income housing? So let's think about how this is affecting everybody today and building the community for our future where everybody has opportunity. Absolutely. And I think one of the great marketing points about Columbus till recently has been how affordable it is. I mean, that's that's one of the things that draws people here. I hear that from people, friends that I have around the country all the time. And one of the things they say to me is, you know, I hear that, you know, the housing market is really hot in Columbus, but it's also very affordable. Or when I tell people about Columbus, I say, you know, it's a great place to live, great place to raise a family, and it's pretty affordable. And so as that begins to change, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's going to stop people from coming here, but I think that that that's one of the things that as a city, we can proudly market ourselves as, you know, we are still an affordable city that you can come here, you can make a, a regular salary, a regular income, and you can afford to have a decent place to live, good schools to send your kids to, good neighbors that, that live around you. And I think the more we sort of get into this elitist, high income, luxury, I don't think that, you know, if someone is living in Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, and they think, oh, well, why would I leave where I'm at to go somewhere where it's more expensive? At the end of the day, having affordable housing, there's, I can't think of a, a negative reason to have it. And I get the all, all tides raised. Oh, a rising me, tide raises sure. all ships. Which, yeah. thank you. I get that, but I often find that the people who say that are people who are in the ships that are already. Well, that's well what I was going to say about the statement you just made. It's affordable if you have the salary. Yeah. Right. It's not as easy as it once was in this city to make a middle class wage. And that's why you're seeing the issues. Sure, it's affordable if you're middle class. If you're middle class, it's very affordable. But the middle class is shrinking, and that's something that is something that the city needs to address and should start. I agree. Amy, I just want to thank you for being yes, here. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so glad. Oh, I'm you. so glad there are people out there in the community doing what you're doing. Yes, it's so good to talk. I'm to excited who are about doing your, what you're doing. your pilot project. So, how long does the pilot project last, and then what happens when that concludes? So, the pilot is for three years. Once we finish raising the funds for the pilot, we've raised about 65 to 70 percent of the three-year funding. Then we'll begin raising funds for a demonstration project of a 100 families. We'll use the results. So this will be evaluated by Ohio State University. We'll use the results, which based on national studies show that when kids have an opportunity to live in a high opportunity neighborhood, even for a few years,
years, they are more likely to graduate from high school, go on to other education. Their lifetime earnings are about $300,000 more. Big impact on girls, on their emotional development. So these have very positive effects and positive impact. So we want to highlight that for our community as to why we need to open up the doors of opportunity to everybody. And what we know is when we don't do that, we pay a high cost for the community. So why don't we pay it now by providing access and coaching and the comprehensive programs that she mentioned? It's so hard. I mean, I can't point to one place where you could send somebody who is in need because there's so many issues to address. So how do we do that? And let's build for the future that we'd like to see. So if people want to, can people donate or can people give to your program so you can reach your goal? Oh, they can. And how do they do that? The website is movetoprosper.org. Go on the website, check us out. We have lots of opportunities to get involved and would love to have the financial support. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a great plug. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. All right. So let's switch subjects. I wanted to know what your thoughts on the Starbucks arrest that happened in Philly on April 12th. So basically, uh, just to kind of catch everybody up on on what what happened, there were two African-American gentlemen who went into a Starbucks for a meeting with actually with a, a white colleague of theirs. One of them, after they had been there only a few minutes, one of them asked to use the restroom. They were told by the staff at Starbucks that they could only use the restroom if they purchased something. So the guy basically decided to just wait for whoever they were waiting for. He never went to the restroom. Within a few minutes, the police are called by the Starbucks staff. The police department shows up and basically puts the guys in handcuffs and escorts them out. So we have a little audio that was, because this incident was recorded by multiple people that were in Starbucks, just good natured, by innocent bystanders. Not that it matters, but a white person. White, white, mostly white people. And they were, you know, because I think mostly white people are in Starbucks just hanging out, but for some reason. But yeah, and then on the video, you can see it's mostly white people who are confronting the cops yeah doing the right thing yeah that's what you're doing which by the way should be an example of this is how white people should react when they see this kind of stuff or or anybody like if you see something wrong it's but i agree definitely in this situation yeah so if we could let's go ahead and listen to that clip what did they get called for because there are two black guys sitting here meeting me yes well what did they do what did they do someone tell me what they did and so basically the voices that you heard the male voice that you heard is the gentleman that they were actually having the meeting with so he wasn't initially there but he's he arrived he shortly after and basically he's telling the cops like hey they were waiting for me we were we were meeting here the cops soon after released them because basically they didn't have anything oh, to charge after, him man they spent like Oops. several hours in jail well yeah I'm sorry within that day they released them but basically without pressing any charges the Starbucks employee has moved on Starbucks the CEO of Starbucks decided to close the the for half a day for half a day for basically that'll that'll do it solve problem solved no but here's here's what I write something nice on your cup this is what I don't understand I don't understand or maybe I'm just becoming aware of this I was not aware of how many white people just automatically assume a black male as a threat. I'm telling you, this is a conversation I have a lot, and I don't know when it happens, man, but it's like, 
for some reason, white people, when they see a black person walk down the street, it, it, there's something different than when they see a white person walk down the street. And I don't know when it starts or where it comes from, but it's just one of those things in life that you just shake your head at. What I don't understand is I don't understand the different. difference. Yeah. Um. So in this particular situation, I mean, I guess maybe that's their policy. Maybe the although I will say in my personal experience, one, I've never had a bad experience at Starbucks. I'm not a big Starbucks patron. I don't drink a lot of coffee. Well, let's step back for a second on this. Like, the arrest was ridiculous. Like, let's just set that aside. Yes. But my bigger problem is the call from the Starbucks employee. Right. Now, listen, cops respond to a lot of stuff. And their first brush of information is from that caller. And in her call, she made it sound like that these guys were bad dudes ready to do something bad. And so they show up. But wouldn't you talk to them first? From right there. That... To me, that call should have never been made. Absolutely not. Never been made. And if that call isn't made, then you don't have the incident. And then you have the incident, which, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that for a second. But just to separate them for, for a second and talk about it. The fact an employee in a business where people commonly come and spend time just sitting around and drinking overpriced coffee, they this happens a 100 times a day per store. Somebody's doing it right now. Right now while we're talking. And because these guys were black... She called the cops. Yeah. And so to me, like, that needs to be as much of a conversation from my perspective as much as the ridiculous act of arresting them. I agree. And largely I've heard, and I get it, you know, given the sensitivity and given the actions that we keep seeing from police and the properly placed uproar, you know, that black people have with how they're treated by police, you know, naturally most of the conversation has been directed to the arrests. But to me, it's just as egregious the phone call. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The phone call, this expectation that we have different expectations for you compared to our other customers because... You know, millions of people have gone to Starbucks and sat there. I see it all the time. People sit there and they're not necessarily eating or buying anything. They no. may be in there working or studying or yeah. eating or whatever. And the, the other thing, too, I guess I don't really get about is just it escalates so fast. Like, I, I just don't understand how you go from, hey, you can't use the restroom to I'm just going to automatically call the police. The police come and immediately handcuff these guys, even though it was clear that they weren't being violent, they weren't being disruptive. And it basically, even though you had, bystander saying hey this is this is a bad situation this isn't correct they still went ahead with it so i don't know it's just like my point is you can charge someone with making a false 911 call and other than her moving on and i don't i i'm sorry i apologize i don't know if she was fired or she just decided to move on we don't know probably a mutual mutual, thing i don't think starbucks was sad to see her go right are there going to be any repercussions for her uh, on the legal side. I, I mean, these guys, these guys spent hours in jail with people who, a majority of them were probably legitimate bad people. Right. And they got to sit in a cell just because they were in Starbucks. I mean, this stuff harkens back to, I mean, to me, it's it's the same thing as spraying with fire hoses against a building. I mean, it's right. that kind of yeah. just despicable thing. And, you know, but I'm telling you, it is real for when white people see black people, it's viewed differently than when they see a white person sitting there or walking down the street. I don't know how we get there. I assume it's, you know, decades and decades upon racism and bigotry and whatever. But well, I like to say shout out to all the white brothers and sisters out there. They use their white privilege um, to benefit other people. Yeah. And that's basically the people that shot the video and stood up for 
these guys, you know, big ups to them because they didn't have to do that. And had they not had the woman not tweeted out the video, this would have happened and nobody would have ever known about it. And there would have never been any repercussions for the Starbucks employee or anybody else. So as always, please check out all of our great content on Dispatch.com as well as Lucas's stories. You can email us at L. Sullivan at Who's Dispatch. Who's L. Sully? I have no idea. I know I got that from at somewhere. L. Sullivan at Dispatch.com. Oh, your Twitter My handle. Twitter is at Dispatch Sully. Yelling me there. And if nothing else, remember to try to see the other side. Thanks. <laughs>